Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes, but how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 exchanges. 1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. And that's where First American Exchange Company comes in. They're the leaders in 1031 exchanges. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting, First American Exchange can help you with simple rental property exchanges, complex commercial real estate investments, reverse exchanges, and more. Don't let your taxes eat into your profits. Visit First American Exchange Company at firstexchange.com or call them at 800-556-2520. That's firstexchange.com or 800-556-2520. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, everyone. Welcome to On The Market. We have a very special guest panel for you today. We have Scott Trench, the CEO of Bigger Pockets, joining us. Scott, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I am embarrassed that it took us like 112 shows to invite you on, but thank you for, for coming. <laughs> Jay, I think you're our first three-time guest. We have Jay Scott. I don't. How would you introduce yourself, Jay? You do so many things. I'm a Bigger Pockets OG. How about that? That is that is a good one. Yes, and absolutely true. I'm excited to be here. And Kathy, you need no introduction on this show, but you can say hi as well. I, I want to be a Bigger Pockets NG. <laughs> <laughs> You're a new gangster. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. All right. Well, we have this esteemed guest panel here to make some predictions about the second half of this year and what's going to happen in the broader economy and the housing market. We have gone through a really interesting first half of the year. And if you listen to the show, you probably know what has been going on. But the question on most people's mind is, is this hot market that we've seen over the summer going to continue? Are we going to enter a recession? And we're going to get Kathy, Scott, and Jay's takes in just a minute. But first, we need to evaluate all of your respective credibility to make some predictions. So we're going to do a quick trivia game to ask you about some of the things going on in the U.S. right now and see how well you're keeping up with real estate trivia. 
Scott, it's your first time here, so we're going to pick on you first. The first question is, how many renter-occupied homes are there in the United States? Ooh, I'm going to go with uh, 45 million, plus or minus 2 million uh, rented residences in this country. All right. Jay? Um, So let's see. There are about 125 million households in the U.S., and the home ownership rate is somewhere in the 64 to 66% rate. So that's 35% of the households are renters, which 35% of 125 million. I'm right around 45 million also, plus or minus 2 million. I'm right where Scott is based on that. This is the only place in the show where Jay and I are going to agree. <laughs> yeah, this, this might be the only part where you're going to agree. So let's enjoy this camaraderie while it lasts. Uh, because you're both actually extremely accurate. It is... 44 million. So uh, the plus or with, with the plus or minus 2 million, Scott, you got it, Jay, uh, as well. So congratulations to both of you. That was very impressive. Our second one, I think they're getting a little bit harder. So second question is, which city was voted the best city to live in in the U.S. this past year? So the criteria were cost of living, housing prices, the weather, healthcare access, and also given inflation, the costs of goods and services. Anyone got an answer for that? Jay, I guess we'll go with you first. I, I seem to recall hearing this and it being a city that I was surprised, like somewhere in the the southeast, Alabama or Tennessee or something like that. Um, I'm going with Memphis, Tennessee. I don't know. I'm going to go with Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay. Both in the southeast, but both wrong. Ah. We are actually... In a very different part of the country is Green Bay, Wisconsin. And as I was reading this, thinking, man, they used weather to evaluate this. Everything else must be very good in Green Bay if the weather didn't drag it down. But as everyone on the show knows, I'm long on I'm long on the Midwest. And I think uh, Wisconsin is a really good investing market. The Mid-North, North Midwest. Yeah, it's growing pretty quickly over there. All right. For our last question. Which is the fastest growing U.S. city in terms of population? Scott? Um, fastest growing city in, US, in the U.S. in terms of population. I'm going to go with um, Tampa Bay, Florida. Okay, that's your neck of the woods. Yeah, I'm going to actually go a little bit north of there and say Ocala, Florida. Oh, I can never pronounce that that place. Ocala is how it's said. Okay. Yep. I always get that wrong. Um, it is in Texas, which I mean, I think you had a pretty good guess at either Texas or Florida. It is Georgetown, Texas, which I think, which I think is just north of Austin in like that Round Rock area. And it apparently grew 14% in a, in a single year, which is remarkable. <laughs> From 20 to 22 people. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. But uh, no, current population is 86,000. So oh, it, did, wow. it, grow, it grew pretty significantly. Do we got Kathy back? Yeah, you guys, if Rich just is a miracle man and got my hardwired working. You're back. You just officially lose the game. So you're starting in last place. <laughs> you forfeit all of your answers. I did that on purpose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> all right. If you if you all couldn't tell, Kathy disappeared if you're not watching on YouTube because her internet went out. But she's back and she's ready for the actual part of the show. She just comes in last place for the trivia game. Scott and Jay. 
you tie. And so the amicable start to the show continues. And I just want to say there was no way I was going to compete against these guys. So I, <laughs> I played this one well. <laughs> I'm sure you would have gotten a few of them, Kathy. We, we, we whiffed on all of them except for uh, – actually, let, let, can we ask you how many how many rented residences are there in the United States? It's not fair. I think – well, I would say I did a story on it a while ago and it was 44. I have no idea what it is today. Oh, Kathy came back and wins. <laughs> is it still? Kathy just disappeared and she was just Googling the answer. And then she came back and it was like, oh, it's 44 million. Yeah. Well, I know it was last year, but I would think it would have increased. But All right. Well, Kathy, I think you still have to lose. But uh, yeah, that, that, was a, that was a major flex. You're definitely a bigger pockets NG now. <laughs> All right. Now we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to On The Market. We have Scott Trench, Jay Scott, and Kathy Fecky here to make some predictions about the second half of the year here in 2023. Our first question is going to be about interest rates because obviously so much of the direction of the housing market and real estate prices right now are being impacted by interest rates. And so, Scott, we're going to start with you. Where do you think interest rates? Um, and let's talk about we're, we're going to specifically talk about mortgage rates. I assume you'll get to the federal funds rate as part of that. But let's talk about mortgage rates and where you think they are heading throughout the rest of 2023. I think that mortgage rates are going to be volatile, but on a steady march upward from where they are now to get to in the high sevens, low eights by the first quarter of 2024 in a nutshell. And why, what's, what are the major drivers of that opinion? Yeah. So I think that first the Fed is saying that they're going to raise rates another one or two times, uh, quarter rate hikes. And, um, I think that that's what they're going to do. I think that they, uh, uh, messed up in 2021 and they've been correcting that and been very clear about what they're going to do. And I, I take them at their word at this point. I think a lot of people don't like the Fed. I think that we have the least bad central bankers on planet Earth uh, in the United <laughs> States, um, which I think perhaps some people will, would agree with at least that phrasing. And I think they're going to do exactly what they say, and um, they're going to likely get the outcomes that they're looking for. Now, what that means is that the uh, you know the treasury and, and short-term debt that's tied to the federal funds rate or very close to that is going to continue to march up a few ticks. And unless there's an economic disaster, which I I'm not seeing the the the, the uh, I, I'm less bearish than perhaps some other folks, and I think that we're going to get relatively speaking more of that soft landing that the Fed is looking for. That's going to result in the yield curve, which results you know the ten year uh, Treasury, for example, continuing to march up. So I think your ten year is going to march up and up and up and up and up, and that's going to put upward pressure on mortgage rates. Complicating this is there's a spread between the ten year and the thirty year mortgage rate that is going to uh, decrease. But I think that the overall pressure, upward pressure from rising um, federal funds rate and a normalizing yield curve is going to offset um, a normalized spread in the mortgage. How's that for a very complicated rationale for why I think that uh, 30-year mortgage rates are going to march slowly upward, but again, be volatile? I, I think it's a very good rationale. Those are the two real major variables right now, it seems, is the yield on the 10-year and the spread between the 10-year and mortgage rates. But I, I got to tap Jay in here and hear what he has to say, because I think he's going to disagree. Uh, I do disagree. Um, so I personally think the 10-year is not going to 
keep marching upwards. Um, I do think the the yield curve will will righten itself out, but I think we'll see short term uh, treasuries drop before we see long term treasuries or mid term treasuries uh, spike. So I, I think um, we're going to see the ten year right now. It's at like. 3.7375 um as of a, a day or two ago um I think it's it's going to substantially stay the same, maybe even drop a little, because I do think that we're going to run into some headwinds in the economy. I think that we're going to see some issues with jobs and employment, and um, I, I think that's going to cause things to soften. I think that's going to cause the tenure to kind of hold steady at, at that like high threes, uh, mid to high threes. And I do agree with Scott that that delta between uh, the 10-year treasury rate and mortgage rates is historically smaller than it is today. So I think we're going to see mortgage rates come down a little bit closer to that 10-year. Um, and and so I, if I had to predict, I'd say, and I said 6% mortgage rates last uh Last December, um, at the end of last year, I was pretty close there. I got lucky, um, but I'm going to say somewhere around the same at the end of this year, somewhere around 6% mortgage rates at the end of this year. So it sounds like the major point of disagreement is the general state of the economy. Scott, you think that a soft landing is possible. That would reduce demand for 10-year-old treasuries, which would push the yield upward and bring mortgage rates up, where Jay, sounds like you're a little bit more pessimistic about the general economy. In, traditionally, in recessionary times, there's a lot of demand for U.S. Treasuries, and that pushes yields down. Um, and so that seems like the linchpin between what you two are disagreeing about. Kathy, are you going to come in and just blow both of these guys out of the water <laughs> here with like a perfect answer again? Well, um, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it's just so hard to predict anything these days. I think that's one thing we've definitely learned and many, many have tried. And so I will try. But I, I will say that there's a lot of different pressures and it's not that simple. Uh, one thing we know is that the Fed has had a, an experiment with quantitative easing, buying uh, mortgage-backed securities, and that really um, was an artificial that's, – that's artificial. So we, we haven't had a natural market for a while. But when the Fed says that they're going to unload that and basically sell those mortgage-backed securities, that that kind of floods the market. So it's, a, it's an environment we haven't really been in before. Uh, I, I think without all that manipulation, we would see mortgage rates coming down. Uh, but, but because of that, we may not. So in a natural, so to, to sum it up in a natural market, I think we'd see mortgage rates come down because inflation's coming down. And I don't think the 10 year is going to go up. It would, it would normally come down under the circumstances of a looming recession. Uh, but again, because the Fed had artificially bought all of these mortgage backed securities and is now selling them, there'll be more, more on the market and that would cause rates to go up. So I just kind of think they're going to stay steady and, and that would be somewhere in the, in the low sixes, mid sixes is where I think we'll see it, uh, rates over this fall. Scott or Jay, you want to respond to that or any other thoughts on mortgage rates? I think it's a who knows situation. So I th- I love how you opened up with these, these, uh, these trivia games to show how, just how wrong we're going to be um, <laughs> on any of these guesses about just like current realities, uh, and the past, like no one, no one knows all this stuff. So yeah, I think, I think that it's uh, anybody's guess there. And I just would slightly weight the probability of 
at least in the term, the definitions of a recession and, and employment numbers and those types of things that we track officially, uh, more of a soft landing than perhaps Kathy and Jay are, are, are forecasting here for reasons I'm sure we'll get into later. Well, let's get into that because that is one of the questions we were going to talk about. Like, are we in, do you think we are currently in a recession or will we enter one? Scott, we got a brief preview of your, or your opinion there. Jay, can you take that one first? Yeah. Um, so I, I hate this question of are we in a recession? Because <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, there's really no good definition. And I know a lot of people talk about that if you have two negative uh, consecutive quarters of, of GDP, that's a recession. And a lot of people like that definition. But I will point out that even over just the last 20 years, um, there have been two situations where um, 2001, we didn't see two negative quarters of, of, of GDP, consecutive quarters of GDP in 2001. But I don't think anybody that lived through that would disagree that we saw a recession in, in 2001. And then in 2008, we didn't see two negative quarters of, of GDP until the end of 2008. So technically, by that definition, the 2008 recession didn't start until the beginning of 2009. And I think most people would disagree with that as well. Um, so when you look at the data that two negative consecutive quarters of GDP, I don't like that definition. Um, I think it's a little bit more amorphous and vague. And you kind of look at the economy and you say, hey, are things bad? Yeah, no. Um, at some point, you transition from a good economy to a bad economy. And if you want to draw the line for recession somewhere in there, you can. Um, but for me, I'd, I'd rather just say one to 10, how, how good or bad is the economy? And if we look back about a year, um, we saw, or two years, we saw what a lot of people would deem a technical recession back in 2021 when we saw those two negative quarters of, of GDP. Now we've had positive quarters of GDP ever since, um, so does that mean we're no longer in a recession? I would argue that now is actually worse than things were a year ago um, when we saw those two negative quarters of GDP. And so if anything, I would say if you thought we were in a recession before when, when, when we had that technical definition, I think we're still at least in the same situation now um, when that technical definition no longer applies. Yeah, I, 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 uh, we've, we've talked about this a lot on the show before. And just for everyone to know, like the way that we fig officially figure out if we're in a G, if in a recession is retroactive. There is a government bureaucracy, the National Bureau of Economic Research, and they decide like years later. So that's why this is up for debate is that, as Jay said, there is like a textbook definition that a lot of people use that is not the official way. And there is no official way um, to know uh, whether we are in a recession or not. So even though you hate this question, Jay, we're going to make you debate it. So, Kathy, <laughs> why are you a little bit uh, pessimistic about the economy? Well, um, I'm not so pessimistic. Yeah. We are technically not in one now because GDP has not been negative. It's been positive. We have over 10 million job openings. Uh, jobless claims are are rising, but still pretty low uh, when you look at it historically. So generally, you don't have a recession when when there's job openings. People may be losing their jobs, but they can turn around and and get another one. Um, on the government website, they're calling it the Great American Reshuffling, where there is a lot of of people leaving their jobs and going getting a, another one. And again, that's not generally. Uh, something that happens in a recession. You, if you lose your job, you have a harder time finding one. So until we see the, the labor market break, 
I just don't think we're going to see a recession. But unfortunately, that's what the Fed is focused on is breaking the labor market. So, um, I don't think, I, I don't think it'll happen this year, but it all depends on what the Fed does. I mean, if they, they've said they plan to keep hiking the rates, they, we all thought they were done and then they don't think they're done because they're still going after that inflation number of 2% that they're just fixated on for some reason. Um, and, and the only thing that the way they know how to get there and to lower, uh, inflation to what they want, which is still twice what they want at 4%, much lower, but still not where they want. Uh, they are going to go after the job market and that could bring in a recession. So if they went crazy and hiked rates a lot, I think we'd see it this year. But if they go gentle, uh, I just, I don't see it this year. Um, and, and all the reshoring that's happening as well. There's, uh, there's a big push to bring business back to the U.S. and that's bringing more jobs. And, and it's so bizarre because it, the government is actually promoting that, right? More jobs when the Fed is trying to kill those jobs. So again, it's like all these forces coming in and conflicting that, that makes it feel to me like we're going to just stay steady for a while. See, I, I don't feel like they're, likely to be many more rate hikes. And we can talk about that separately. Um, but independent of that, I feel like the Fed's already overcorrected. Um, I feel like raising five, uh, 500 basis points over the past year and a half um, is put us in a situation where we haven't yet seen the ramifications of our actions. And we talk about the labor market. The problem I think with the labor market is everybody focuses on the headline numbers. So you look at the May jobs report um, that, and, and we haven't seen the July jobs report. We will by the time this comes out, but we haven't as of the recording. But if you look at the May jobs report and the headline is 339,000 jobs were created. Um, but it's not a very good good number because there's two job surveys that the government uses to determine what's going on in the jobs market. They have this thing called the establishment report, which is basically uh, the government polls companies and they say, how many people have you added to your payroll? And last month uh, or May, uh, that was 339,000. So jobs companies have said, we added 339,000 jobs to our payroll. So that's the number that gets reported. 339,000 jobs were created last month. Everything's great. But there's actually a secondary survey that the, that the government carries out and that's called the household survey. And that's where the government calls up regular people like you and me on our cell phone or our landline and says, hey, how's your job going? Are you employed? Are you unemployed? Are you looking for a job? And the household survey last month basically showed that 400,000 people lost their jobs. 400,000 people said to the government when they, when they picked up the phone, I was employed last month. I'm not employed this month. And so there's a big difference between what companies are reporting and what households are reporting. Why is that? Well, the big difference between those two surveys is self-employment. The company, the establishment survey doesn't capture people that are self-employed. They don't uh, capture mom and pop businesses. They don't uh, capture gig workers, people that do Uber and DoorDash and Etsy. And so while companies are saying that their, their payroll ranks are growing, people are saying we're losing jobs. And so it turns out about 400,000 people back in May lost their, their self-employment or, or said I'm no longer employed as, as a self-employed person, not to mention 
when somebody goes and, and takes a second job, that adds a number to the payroll survey. That companies say, hey, we, we added somebody on the payroll, but it doesn't take somebody off of unemployment. They still say they're employed. So when somebody says they're employed, we don't know if they have one, two, three, four jobs. So it's possible that back in May, a lot of people just added a second, a third, or a fourth job, um, which doesn't bode well for 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 the economy and and for for the employment sector. So overall, I think employment is a lot worse than than what the headline numbers uh, indicate. Secondarily, I read an article yesterday that basically said that with interest rates where they are, um, there are a lot of businesses that are struggling. Think about this: How do businesses capitalize themselves? A lot of businesses are, are self sufficient and they make money and they live off their profits, but a whole lot of businesses. Don't do that. They capitalize by getting money from investors, venture capitalists or angel investors, or by borrowing money from banks or by issuing bonds. And rates for all of these things, whether it's it's bonds that you're issuing or m- borrowing money from banks or what you have to pay to investors, as interest rates go up, companies have to pay more for for all these forms of financing. And companies can't afford. Walmart last year was able to sell bonds at 7%. They could raise money at 7%. Now they have to raise money at 12%. Walmart might be able to handle that, but there are a whole lot of businesses that can't. And so what I read uh, yesterday was that 37% of businesses are facing significant headwinds from this credit crunch um, because they're having trouble borrowing money at costs that they can afford. 37% of businesses. Imagine if even a quarter of those businesses went out of business. We're talking 9, 10% of businesses. That's tens of millions of people that are going to lose their jobs when those businesses go out of business, even if they don't go out of business, even if they just have to cut employees, even if they have to cut back to save money. Um, we're going to see potentially millions of people out of jobs because interest rates were higher and that affects businesses. That's some great data. And I, I totally agree with you about the, the labor market data. There is very confusing and often conflicting data. Um, so if you are interested in that, there, there's... Definitely dig into it a little more than just seeing the top line number. But Scott, I'd love to hear um, your opinion because you've been saying that you're thinking that a soft landing is possible. Yeah. So first of all, when I say soft landing, I'm talking about in terms of the definitions of like employment as we officially compute it. I think Jay's diagnosis is spot on. The Fed, and so the question is like we these academic questions: Are we in a recession? Will unemployment go up? These types of things, right? We can debate those all day in, in terms of these definitions. What's going to happen over the next several quarters is pain is going to hit the economy. People are going to make less money. Um, however, you want to phrase that in terms of unemployment or loss of gig of, of gig worker jobs, and asset values are going to march downwards, most likely in a lot of cases, especially these small businesses that Jay. Uh, just described here. The challenge is the Fed, what's the Fed going to do about it, right? That's what we're trying to predict, trying to get at here, right? Um, and if you put your on your Jay Powell hat, right, this guy blew it uh, in 2021, right? Inflation went way too high. He knows it. Everyone knows it. Well, how are we, how are we thinking about our legacy here? Um, if we're, if we're Jay Powell and the Fed at this point in time, we're going to combat inflation, right? The central bankers are going to be remembered for did inflation spike during their tenure or was there a horrible economic recession or depression um, that they put in place? And if you can avoid those two things, that's the only marching order here. And the Fed at this point in time has a clear run of uh, run of sight to stop inflation because the because of what Jay just described here and the unemployment numbers being so masked by these other underlying factors, the gig economy exploding by 20 to 30 million jobs over the last decade, 30 million gig gig jobs. Those don't count in unemployment stats. 
right? Um, self-employment, I don't know the, the, the numbers there, but, um, I'm sure that that self-employment has increased to a large degree by many of these folks in a similar capacity. That doesn't count in terms of these um, and some of these unemployment or job, jobless claims to a large degree. Um, there's 11 million illegal immigrants in this country. Probably many of them are employed. They won't show up on those statistics. So I think the Fed has a very long run um, ahead of them where they can create a lot of pain in the economy without undermining their charter of keeping unemployment low in addition to keeping inflation low. And I think that's the real risk factor here that we've got to be kind of uh, uh, aware of. And to me, that allows them to, to me, that gives them a clear line of sight to not just raise them one or two more times like they say they're going to do, but keep them high long past the point where pain begins to come into the economy. Um, um, because it won't be counted in an official capacity. And so I, I that's where I'm kind of worrying about this, right? That's not good news. This is not a, a, a very uh, a fun prediction when I say that's my soft landing that we're going to get here is the Fed's going to beat inflation by crushing all of these unofficial uh, employment um, statistics that aren't going to show up on their scorecard. Can we talk about inflation? Let's do it. So I think to a large degree, um, we've beaten inflation in the short term. And I know a lot of people disagree with me there. Um, but here's, here's what I think the data is going to indicate over the next couple months. Um, right now, uh, as we're recording this, uh, the trailing 12 months of inflation is at 4.0%. Um, the June numbers come out on July 12th, which will be a week and a half, I think, before this gets released. And I think what we're going to look back when this is released and we're going to see is that inflation um, in that one month, the annual number is going to have dropped from 4.0% to under 3.5%. And then in August, we're going to see the July number. And I'd be willing to bet that that 3.5% annual number drops below 3%. So come August, we're going to be hearing a headline that inflation is now under 3%. Is it really under 3%? No, but the trailing 12 months, the average of the last 12 months is probably going to be under 3% as of August because the two numbers that get replaced over the next two months were numbers from last year that were super, super high. And anytime you do an average and you take out a big number and you replace it with a small number, the average is going to drop. And so we're going to see uh, inflation drop from 4 to three and a half to under three in two months. And I think the media is going to latch on to that, even though it's not meaningful, even though somebody as dumb as me can sit here and predict that's going to happen because that's just math. The media is going to latch on to that and they're going to say, look at this, inflation's finally under control, even though it really hasn't changed. The monthly numbers are going to be the same, um, but the annual number is going to drop. And so I think come July, come August, the Fed's going to meet and they're going to say, okay, inflation's okay. Jobs haven't changed that much. Everything's good. We don't need to hike. But then you go to September and you look at the August number. Well, last August was a really, really low number. So come September, we're likely to see uh, inflation number go up. And so that's when the Fed's going to have to basically say, okay, now the media is reporting that inflation is going up again. The same thing is going to happen in October, September and October. We're going to see that number go up again. And that's when the Fed's going to have to make a difficult decision. Do they hike again? Not necessarily because inflation's bad, but because again, that headline number that everybody looks at is going to look worse. And so if I had to make a prediction on inflation, I'm going to say by the time this comes out, we're under three and a half percent. 
Come uh, August, we're under 3%. Come September and October, we're back over 3%. Everybody starts to panic a little bit, and the Fed has a tough decision to make in September and October. And I think that's when it's possible that we see uh, another 25 uh, basis point hike from the Fed come September, October. Yeah, Jay. I mean, what it really comes down to is the Fed is looking and driving the economy, looking through the rearview mirror. And the, the tools that they've been using are outdated. It needs to be updated, but that's not going to happen this year, sadly. Um, what what I, I couldn't agree with you more that we probably are where we need to be, but the data that they're using is is old data, you know? So one example of that is, is rent and owner's equivalent rent when they take the average of the last 12 months. Well, we know that rents were insane a year ago, but they really have come down in terms of growth. The growth rate is way down, but when you average the last year, it's going to look higher. Uh, so they're just they're just not looking at the current data, unfortunately, and that will affect the decisions that they make. It's, it's the same with, uh, I mean, we've been fighting deflation actually for a decade until this past year. It was 2021 that, uh, Janet Yellen was saying, Oh, we need more inflation, you know, <laughs> and, and boy, did they get it. Uh, so deflation has really been more the trend until the last you know, few years and, and due to, of course, what the Fed, the manipulation of the Fed. So sadly, uh, Jay, I think you're right. I think that they've, they've fixed it, but they're, the data is not going to tell them that because they're using outdated data. And, uh, unfortunately, that could mean that they raise rates and really cause a mess. So hopefully somebody on the team is going to wake them up. But based on the last Fed meetings, it was kind of unanimous. I think there were two that were not in agreement, but it was the rest of them were, were very bullish on raising rates further this year. So let me ask a question here, um, you know, uh, and, 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 and be that guy there. Okay. So we all agree that the rates are going to go up and that we think that's likely that the Fed is going to increase rates. We're all kind of maybe differing opinions there. You know, some of us think that the Fed are not very smart. I, I think the Fed is probably probably, you know, we're probably giving a little too less, too little credit to the Fed. And they're probably pretty smart guys there um, to some degree, but we all think that they're going to raise it. Why do we think the 10 year is going to go, going to stay down and not continue to rise uh, in that context? I, I personally don't think the Fed is likely to raise rates. Um, I think that they've, they've spent the last, as long as I've been an adult talking very aggressively about how they're going to take action and they're going to quash inflation if it happens and they're, they're willing to be bold and take chances and do what's right. And, um, despite all that talk, what we've seen over again, the last 20, 25 years that I've been paying attention, um, is that they typically are, are, are pretty dovish. They're typically pretty, um, they, they, they don't want to take bold action because they're scared of breaking things. Um, and I personally think that once inflation comes down over the next two months, and again, the math indicates that it almost certainly will, um, I think they'll use that as cover not to raise rates. Like I said, I think they're going to have a hard decision to make in September or October, um, but I think it's unlikely that we see more than one more hike, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I, I'd, I'd be willing to, to even make a reasonable bet that we see no more hikes this year. So I don't necessarily think we're going to see additional rate hikes. It's so interesting to hear everyone predicting the Fed because, Jay, I, I, I get that argument that like the Fed will use 
inflation coming down to as an excuse to raise rates, not raise rates, uh, not raise rates. But I've also heard the the opposite opinion that the Fed is intentionally using lagging data as cover to keep raising rates. I mean, Kathy and I <laughs> interviewed someone just the other day who was saying that. So it's very interesting. We're all just trying to predict what they're really trying to get at. Here's a trivia question for you, Dave. So we're talking about inflation here. Um, and we know that like shelter costs and and the, the term Kathy used, owner equivalent rent, um, basically all these things that that involve housing is a component of, of inflation data of CPI. What percentage of CPI do you think is made up of housing data? Oh, I used to know this. I think of the headline CPI? Yeah. It's like 20 or 30%? Yeah, 33%. And of course, CPI, it's over 40%. Yeah. So basically, a more than a third and up to like 40% of, of the inflation number is housing. And Kathy hit the nail on the head when she said, especially with housing, you can't trust the number because it's so lagging. Mm-hmm. We're looking six, it's nine terrible. months in the yeah. past when it comes to housing data. And yet that is by far the single biggest component of this inflation number. And and so Kathy's right on the mark when she said the tools we have to look at this are just meaningless. And so we're looking at these numbers and and we're we're making or not we, the Fed, and I agree with Scott that I think the Fed is a lot smarter and 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 um than a lot of people give them credit for. I, I like the Fed. Um I think they're the best of the of a bad group of of central banks out there in the world. Least bad <laughs> central bank in the world. Yes, the best bad <laughs> central bank in the world. Um and but like Kathy said, yeah they they're, the tools that they're using, hopefully they have internal tools that are a whole lot better than the stuff that we're seeing. Um, because yeah, I, I don't think the the, day, the actual data we're seeing is meaningful, even if the trends might be. Well, and you know, Jay Powell is an attorney, not an economist, and that's that says something right there. Uh, nothing we can do about it, right? We've got to just be able to react and and be able to operate in a time when when we're not in control of it, and we don't know what's coming. And we all, it's so funny that the three of us, uh, I thought would be maybe more in the same camp, but it's really wild to have uh, so many different opinions right here from bigger pockets, from the OGs and the NGs. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jay, to your point, if you've heard of like core inflation, which just strips out food and energy costs, now there's core core inflation, which yeah. also <laughs> strips out shelter costs. And yeah. that's been dropping pretty significantly. Um, yeah. Uh, because I think a lot of people are trying to get at what Jay is saying, which is sort of like if you strip out this lagging indicator in the core, which is really bad, um, then you get a better idea. We, we need just one CPI number that all it factors in is the cost of Skittles. <laughs> <laughs> strip everything out, else out. That's what the people care about. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a, a concern is that if the, the, the Fed is so fixated on this 2% inflation rate, which, you know, nobody really wants inflation, except I guess if you own assets that inflate, it's good for you. But nobody wants to pay more for things, right? So, but this this 2%, like, where did that come from? And to get there, doesn't that mean if you're averaging over the past year, um, and, you're, and you're looking behind, you would have to have really, really, really low under 2% inflation numbers to average to get to 2%. So it's almost, it's impossible, it's really impossible as I see it, and you're the numbers guys, but how do you get to 2% when you have higher inflation in the past and you're looking at the past and you're averaging, you're not going to get there unless you change that target somehow. And, and, 
and and admit like we can't get there because we don't have low inflation numbers to average into this equation. Americans do not like high inflation. Why why they pick 2%? Literally, I think it was something to the effect of, well, if it, there's deflation, people hoard too much money and they don't spend and that 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 that, that lags your economy. So a little bit of inflation um, encourages people to consume and it's I think it's literally as simple, you know, and, yeah. and as complex as that that kind of line of thinking. Go ahead, Dave. No, I was going to say we had Nick Tiramos on the show. He's like follows the Fed for the Wall Street Journal and he told us the whole story. Basically, some economists in New Zealand came up like were, had that exact line of thought that you were talking about, and they were like, 2%. And then basically every other uh, central bank in the world was like, okay, 2%. New Zealand did it first. Yeah. So, so look, that, if, that's, if that's your rationale, and you know, how can you argue that, right? I mean, I mean millions of people will, like, 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 you know, with this, but like, like it's just a pointless debate. That's, that's their target right there. And they have real pressures that are going to prevent them, Kathy, to your point, from getting to that 2% target. And one of the big ones there that, you know, I think is underlying all of this is an aging population in this country um, and not enough immigration to replace those workers. So a lot of people are just retiring. Mm -hmm. That's great news for people like us, right? Um, we're we're going, to, we're going to have a lot of wage um, optionality, um, you know, to, over the course of the next couple of years, uh, the next couple of decades, um, as as uh, demand for workers grows and there's not enough pool of supply, and that the Fed is keying in on that as a core metric that they're looking to to, to attack. That's one of their leading indicators. Um, that they're they're trying to attack here, and there are huge problems with that, right? I mean, we've got the again the aging full the population, lots of people retiring. Ten thousand boomers are leaving the workforce every single day, and that will continue for the next several years. Um, and we've got this new remote remote work world. Um, yes, there's some pull pullbacks from that, but by and large, you can get a job anywhere. Um, you can work many of these jobs anywhere in the country, and that continues to put upward pressure on wages here. So I think that they're going to have their work cut out for them. And that brings me back to this point of, I, I can't see, a, I can't see the path to uh, these, some of these like leading indicators and core inflation metrics going below 2%. I can't see the Fed uh, stopping raising rates altogether in the near future. Um, or if I can, I can't see them bringing them back down. And that bodes very ill for investors in certain asset classes because if rates stay high for years in a row, which is where I think I would, I would be leaning at this point um, in, in my sentiments, that creates compounding pressures for certain people in certain, in certain asset classes like the small business owners Jay just talked about. That's why there is a solution. Bring on the robots. <laughs> I don't know if you remember, like five years ago or whatever, people were like, oh my gosh, all these robots are going to take our jobs. It's like, yeah, bring them on. I've been saying the same thing, Kathy. <laughs> we need the robots. They're our friends. They're our this friends. is how we all get killed by the robots. We invite them in. <laughs> well, ChatGTP will be making the predictions here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're all out of a job soon. Uh, well, I do want to, before we get out of here, I do want to get to the housing market. You know, we've talked a lot about the macro indicators and, and factors that impact the housing market, but would love to hear where you think things are going. Kathy, let's, let's start with you. What do you think all of this, your, you know, if you could sum up all your feelings about the economy, how do you think it's going to impact the housing market? Well, as I've said before, Dave, there is no housing market, so it can't affect it. <laughs> no. <laughs> 
Um, no, it will, every market will be affected differently. I, you know, being born and raised in San Francisco, 2001 was a really, really hard time. You know, during the tech recession, it hit San Francisco hard. Other areas might not have felt it. Uh, so fast forward to today, uh, some areas are bringing in jobs like crazy. Uh, and many of those areas are very, are, are doing that on purpose. They're giving tax credits and making it a really job friendly place. Of course, Texas and Florida come to mind when I say that. There's other areas that are absolutely repelling jobs. So no matter what's happening, uh, whether we're in a recession or not, those areas are going to feel the pain if they're not friendly to businesses. So, you know, to come, to, it's just going to be different wherever you are. Uh, I, I think what we're seeing is a bifurcated market. You've got more affordable markets that aren't feeling the pain because a rise in interest rates doesn't make that big a difference in the payment on a $200,000 house. So in, in areas that are affordable where there are jobs and it's just steady markets, not as much pain. You go into an area where uh, a million, million five is the average home price. It's they're feeling it more. I mean, I can tell you that just anecdotally in in Park City, there's more inventory than in in other areas. Those are higher priced properties, and people maybe just getting rid of their second homes. So again, it's going to just completely depend on the market. But as always, if you follow the jobs and the jobs that are are here to stay, the jobs of the future, housing's going to be propped up in in areas that where jobs are leaving and people are leaving it's going to be harder all right jay what are your thoughts um i i don't think we're going to see a normal housing market for at least a year or two maybe several years so i think things are going to be messed up for the next couple of years at least relative to what we've seen the last however many years decades um Historically, I mean, if you look at the data between 1900 and 2013, um, if you track inflation and you track uh, the increase in housing prices, what you'll find is that those two numbers have pretty much gone hand in hand. Now, housing prices, inflation kind of goes up nice and slowly and consistently in a straight line. Housing kind of goes up and down and up and down and up and down. But between 1900 and 2013, um, where those two things started and where they ended were right about the same place. So you can realistically say, uh, or you can reasonably say that housing prices over the last hundred and some years have tracked inflation. Now, since 2013, um, we've seen a big disconnect. Uh, inflation's kind of kept going up in that straight line and housing prices have just gone through the roof. Um, so there are two things that can happen at this point if you believe that that long-term trend of housing tracking inflation is, is true. Um, one, housing can come crashing back down to meet that inflation line. Um, and in which case we have a 2008 type event where, where we see prices crash. Or two, housing kind of hangs out where it is and inflation just catches up over the next three, five, seven years. Um, which one of those it's going to be? And it could be a combination. Maybe housing will come down a little bit and inflation will, will go up. But I tend to believe that we're not going to see that crash. I tend to believe that it's more likely that we see housing prices kind of stagnate where they are, maybe drop a little bit over the next three or four or five or even more years while inflation catches up and those two lines intersect again. Um, so if I were a betting man, I, I would say that we're going to see stagnant prices probably for the better part of the next five years. Well, you are a betting man. You're like a professional poker player. <laughs> I, I, okay. I'm a betting man. There's, 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 there's my bet. All right. Scott, 
what's the last word on the housing market here? I think I completely agree with that take. Um, I think that uh, uh, it's going to be very regional. Local supply and demand forces are going to trump the, you know, macro forces um, in in some cases around the country. But uh, I think where the where the jobs and people are flowing is generally going to be the right tend, and those markets are going to perform well or less bad than markets where people are leaving. And I think that the higher price markets, to Kathy's point, are at much more risk because that's a huge change in in your payment on uh, on a on a million dollar loan, for example. Um, that's going to be a dramatic shift. Um, I think that what a fundamental thing that we've acknowledged, I think many times, or you've acknowledged, Dave, on, on this podcast is the lock-in effect. Just so, you know, 80 million American homeowners potentially are just locked in to their mortgages that they took out in the last couple of years or own their properties free and clear. So there's not going to be a pressure on the supply front, um, that I think dr- drives a crash downward. I think, you know, un- you know, unless, uh, unless interest rates come down, I don't think you're going to see people moving um, unless they have a really good reason to do it, um, and it's going to and it's going to keep transaction volume down. So, my most confident prediction is tr- transaction volume cratered uh, between the you know first part of 2022 and today, and I think it will stay low for five, ten years, slowly creeping back up as the reasons people have to move begin uh, uh, forcing more of that. And there will be very few voluntary moves uh, during that period. So again, transaction volume, keeping transaction volume down. Um, but I don't I don't think prices are going to crater. I think they're going to stagnate, uh, I think is the, is the right word there. Now, when now I do have one caveat. When you consider real estate as an income stream instead of as a personal residence, I think that the value of those income streams has just declined dramatically. When you can go and lend to Walmart, you know, on the public debt market at 12% interest, that makes the 4% cap rate on a multifamily project much less attractive and so much less valuable. And so you're going to need to want to pay 6% or, you know, a 7% cap rate or something like that. So I think that while rents still have room to go up, um, even in spite of the onslaught of supply that we're going to see in the next year in the multifamily space, a lot of constru- units are under construction. Uh, I think the value of cash flow streams from that asset class is going to be in- in- impaired, and that's going to be bad news for some investors in that particular space. Oh, Scott's picking a fight that we need to have on our next. We're gonna have th- we're gonna have to have you all back because we are running out of time. But that is a very good debate. Maybe we'll, Kalen. Maybe we should have a, a part two to this conversation where we talk about the commercial market. Kathy, did you want to say something though? I just wanted to say that if mortgage rates come down and if, if they come down to the low sixes or even into the high fives, which some mortgage brokers think it should be already just because the margin is so wide right now that if it were a normal world and if the Fed actually paused and the banking system could take a breather, then uh, rates would would most likely come down. And if that happened, you'd have another five to 10 million people who are able to qualify for a loan again. And in that scenario, they don't care what the interest rate is. They just want a place to live. There's millions of people. There's seven, what I think, oh, I'm going to get it wrong, but 72 or 82 million millennials. Do you, do you guys know the number? I can't. There's a lot of us. Quiz. There's a lot, millions. And the largest of them are at family formation age. They're, they're having babies. There's like a baby boom, in my opinion. I, it's, it's, you've got the largest group of millennials who are now getting married, having babies and wanting a place to live. So I think we would have a huge housing boom. Boom, boom, boom. Prices going up massively if, if mortgage rates come down. 
So that is kind of what I am actually predicting. I agree with that. If we get interest rates in the high fives, I think you're, I think I'm, I would agree with, with Kathy. I mean, the last numbers I heard, and I believe they were from March or April, 99% of mortgages are below 6%, yep. 72% are below 4%, which means that's 27% of mortgages are somewhere between 4 and, and 6%. And so, yeah, we get below 6% or down in, in the mid fives or even the low fives over the next year. And that's, that's a quarter of the, the people that have mortgages that are now in a position uh, where they can trade out their mortgages without losing money. All right. Well, unfortunately, we have to get out of here. This was very fun. I really enjoyed this episode <laughs> a lot. And maybe we will uh, get steal some more of all of your time to do this again. But uh, in the meantime, thank you all again for being here. Jay, if people want to connect with you, where should they do that? Jscott.com. The letter J, Scott.com. All right. And Scott? Uh, you can find me on, on Bigger Pockets or follow me on Instagram and at Scott underscore Trench. And Kathy? Well, I'm on Instagram, Kathy Fedke, and also you can find me at realwealth.com. All right. Well, thank you all for being here and thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to give us a review on either Apple or Spotify. We really appreciate it. And we'll see you next time for On the Market. On the Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Research by Pooja Jindal. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. And a very special thanks to the entire BiggerPockets team. The content on the show On the Market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but at the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market, it's about the amount of time you have in the market. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that, or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.